Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. This week we are doing an Easter special. And then I think next week there won't be an episode. I'm going to take the week off to continue prepping for the Tulip series. This episode was not planned. Uh, I ended up playing with the idea of doing it after making some posts on Easter. Um, and I put up a poll on Patreon and patrons voted 97% to publish an Easter special episode with a gap in the Tulip series, while only 3% voted to not publish an Easter special and instead continue the Tulip series. And so with that vote, I couldn't really argue against it, especially since I did it to myself, really. And so here we are talking about Easter, Passover, and the Pesky Pagans. That is my title for this. Now, this episode will likely miss things that I wanted to mention, but this episode will also come with a free PDF with everything I'm saying in it so that you can have it right now. As I'm looking at my notes, it's about 30 pages. It's basically like a little mini book. And you can download that uh, from the description of this episode. It should be ready by the time this episode is published. Or you can go to christofthecure.org forward slash PDFs and pick it up there. Before we begin today's episode, which will be longer than most of my episodes because I'm going to keep it all together in one package, Christ of the Cure is subscriber supported. And so if you want to support Christ the Cure and get some perks from being a Patreon, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Christ of the Cure. And that includes the full show notes of the Tulip series, which are exclusive to patrons, unlike this PDF that will be open to everyone. And then the second thing is, guys, if, if you know me, you know that I will mispronounce terms between learning primarily from reading and not listening to things and learning uh, in accordance with my Texas um, accent, whatever that sounds like, mixed with people from my family who came from up north, I, I'm just a mess. And so we're going to do our best um, as we work through this. There will be timestamps in the description. And of course, like I said, if you want to just read through it, you can. You can get the PDF and read through it at the same time that uh, we're talking about it here. And you can see the footnotes and everything else. Um, I probably won't cite everything in a formal manner here because I have everything on a PDF reel. So let's talk about the introduction. Why are we talking about this? Well, every year Christians face an onslaught of claims regarding the historical celebration of Christ's resurrection, aka Easter. Um, the claims make Easter to be this pagan celebration, and the results are basically handfuls of Christians observing the resurrection, feeling guilt, confusion, and shame over basically what amounts to ahistorical legalism placed upon their shoulders. Now, many times individuals ask why I even bother exerting the effort I am right now over these topics. And the reason is uh, because I understand these struggles. I had these struggles that many individuals um, are having over this topic. Whenever I first came to Christ, I went from struggling with Easter to believing Easter was pagan. And then eventually after researching and time, I came to where I am now. So now some actually have taken this explanation in my book, Holidays and the Feast on Christmas, and said that I just went back to because I love the traditions of men. But an interesting factoid that usually dispels that idea is that my family doesn't participate in Halloween. 
I have my particular views about it, and we can debate that till the cows come home. But the point is that it's not that I love traditions of men, it's that I see a connection with the early church that I like participating in, namely the celebration of the resurrection known as Easter. Um, so th this puts me in an interesting position. Now, some say it's inconsistent on both ends of the spectrum, but nonetheless, I contend that Easter is clearly not pagan when you push the historical claims or um, the lack of historical claims, rather. So the claims of Easter being pagan are not new, but they are limited in what areas of the world they affect. Uh, I found from various discussions with people globally that this is really mainly an issue in the United States. And I would probably uh, postulate that this is because of anti-holiday rhetoric that has been heavily propagated since the Reformation, especially in you know the West and Northern America with the Puritans and things of that nature. Nevertheless, the claims that Easter is pagan uh, were addressed in a Christ of the Cure episode a couple years back, which was archived. And so if you're a patron, you have access to that first edition. Um, but eventually those notes were edited and placed into a small book called Holidays and the Feast. But the book primarily focused on Christmas and whether or not Christmas was pagan. And it had a section on Easter where it was a quick laid out the bare bone facts for uh, ease of reference. And so there's some overlap between this and that chapter, but there's more in this than will be in that chapter uh, because that was bare bones, facts, easy reference, right? And so we're going to renew that discussion. Um, is Easter pagan? And really this discussion is hard to organize because there are various assumptions in the minds of those who are um, analyzing this topic and these assumptions linger throughout the presentation. And they're like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And so it's hard to address everything in a way where you don't have to re-listen to everything. So I've tried my best to organize this material in a way that makes sense to me uh, while dealing with various assumptions. Now, here's what you can expect in this episode. First, we'll discuss what exactly is considered pagan. And this is a section I've entitled Cheap Paganism. It's necessary because the term paganism is thrown around in various conversations without a meaningful definition of paganism, which basically amounts to anything that I don't like equals paganism. So we need to define paganism and actually use the term in a meaningful way. Secondly, we will discuss the term Easter itself and how it was, is, and should be understood. And this is necessary as Easter is treated as a foreign entity from Christianity. Uh, and what I mean is that when we discuss the history of Easter, many people automatically assume that this is something separate from Christianity. It, it is a um, a pagan thing that sh has no place in Christianity to begin with. So we need to talk about that. After that, we will briefly, and I mean briefly, just go through the false assertion that's propagated online that Easter has something to do with the goddess Ishtar. Uh, this is necessary to get out of the way because chronologically, Ishtar comes prior to Christianity, meaning that Easter can always be boiled down to, well, it's connected to Ishtar, even if we have evidence for it in the first, second, third centuries, etc. Fourth, we will discuss the history of Easter, especially as it relates to Passover. And while this discussion will not be exhaustive, it will hit on major points that lead to the fifth section, which will discuss whether or not celebrations that are extra biblical are permissible to begin with, and the current resurgence of Christians wanting to observe the Passover. And then sixth, we will briefly discuss principles, not the history of the cultural practices, such as, you know, the Easter eggs and, and the Easter hair 
we're not going to dwell on that much more than just laying out principles for considering those things. And then finally, we will briefly address common pushbacks against Easter in a type of objection response format for the Easter reference. This may not actually end up being in this episode because I don't have the notes for it yet, but they will be in the notes and it probably won't be that many things because most of it's going to be addressed in the episode. Now, some aspects of this topic are easy because there is a level of agreement between Christians. Uh, examples being such as the fact that many Christians agree that the resurrection is central to the gospel and worthy of celebration. That makes this so much easier because even as a quote-unquote extra-biblical celebration, people can agree that you can celebrate the resurrection. So moving from there to an annual celebration isn't really a big step. But um, because Easter is treated as a foreign entity to the celebration, that is, there's a difference between uh, celebrating the resurrection and Easter. They make this dichotomy between those things. Uh, Easter is to be rejected, right? So we need to discuss that. Further, Christians can agree that Jesus is our Passover lamb and that there is a continuity from the Passover in the Old Testament and Jesus' fulfillment of those shadows. Uh, thus, because of those agreements, defending the celebration of the resurrection from the biblical text somewhat becomes unnecessary. Obviously, this doesn't mean that we don't need to have scriptural grounds for what we do, but it means that we have enough common ground here that we can focus on the historical discussions and the historical roots of Easter itself. Now, while many will move their critique of Easter to a lack of quote-unquote biblical support in order to move the discussion away from the historical claims uh, that you know Easter is pagan, we have to press them on these claims because historical claims require historical evidence. That's, that's really what it comes down to. If you're making these historical claims, you have to have history to back it up. Further, there's some level of, of agreement in that Christians have viewed Easter as the Christian Passover in some sense or another, Really, it, it kind of becomes hard to nail down the continuity and discontinuity there. There is both continuity and discontinuity with the Passover in light of Christ's fulfillment as the Passover lamb and as our um, Passover meal that we have every communion and things of that nature. Sometimes with all these agreements, the debate actually moves back to a debate that arose in the early church. When should the resurrection be celebrated as a Passover in accordance with the Jewish calendar or as Easter that is on Sunday? Um, and so how wide this dichotomy becomes varies from person to person. You know, how far people want to split Easter from the celebration of the resurrection or from the Passover, et cetera. It just differs. And so it makes it more complex. So we're going to do the best with what we can. Uh, what we mostly find are Christians who want to partake in the Passover Seder in a way that is baptized or Christianized, right? Um, and this will come up later on. So let's move into cheap paganism. Um, so our first point of interest deals with the various assumptions that come into play when discussing these topics. If these are not addressed, then ultimately we will find these conversations going in more endless circles than they already do. The first and foremost basic question worth addressing is what exactly is paganism and what constitutes a pagan practice? Why does this need to be addressed? Because within these discussions, we are often left with no clear understanding of what paganism is and what makes something pagan. In truth, I have found that many times pagan is used as a catch-all for things a particular individual does not like. And this is common for other terms too. We see this with Gnostic, we see this with Pharisee, we see this with religious, legalistic, whatever. But many times, something is pagan merely because it correlates with a natural phenomena, such as the elements found in various seasons. If something corresponds with a particular season that occurs in the world, it could be deduced as pagan in some people's minds. Um, now, this 
surely cannot be the case for everyone using this label for Easter. So we need to point that out. But this is an assumption by many individuals that I have spoken to. Some truly believe that Easter can be linked back to Ishtar or Ostara. But for others, when pressed on the historical data of the Ishtar-Ostara claims, they will simply resort to, well, it's still pagan, many times with the assumption that because it is not found explicitly commanded in the Bible, it must be pagan. So that's another assumption. Um, now, I suppose this is true to the extent that before Christianity, we were all pagans and everything was used by pagans. But what about those things that were formed by Christians for Christian purposes, for Christian realities, right? Now, for many, even those things are pagan because they are not explicitly found in the Bible, and thus they are to be rejected. This is one of the weaker arguments that you will find. In fact, I would say it's the weakest argument. And so it won't be addressed merely beyond saying this. Individuals who are listening to podcasts, watching YouTube, engaging with posts on social media, and so forth, are by their own logic partaking in pagan activities if that is the litmus test of what it means to be pagan. That is, it has to be found in the Bible, otherwise it's pagan. And I say that this is the same because in many cases, secular also equals pagan. And social media, like we're talking about the metaverse, was developed by secularists. Therefore, it is pagan to participate in those things. But of course, they'll find ways to, to move beyond that and get out of that, that circle. Another way is that we can't worship God in a way that's not explicitly commanded in Scripture. Um, and this kind of falls into the same bounds. If you're listening to worship music via streaming or you're listening to sermons via sermon audio, that is participating in a form of worship that has fallen into a violation of that principle. Of course, unless you're not worshiping God through worship music or coming to worship God through listening to a sermon, but that's neither here nor there. Ultimately, what we need to do is get a solid understanding of what paganism is um, as it is being presented to others because the claim of paganism is thrown around so flippantly. So what makes something pagan? And what is paganism? Well, paganism comes from the Latin term paganus, which originally referred to something akin to rustic, you know, in its original context, like the rustic or rural people. Uh, in its religious meaning, it was a term that described the pagan, right? The one who belongs to ancient polytheism. Now, the specifics about the origins of the religious meaning are debated, but what is clear is that it's only in the 4th century, that is, you know, the 300s AD, that documents use Paganus in the sense that many Christians use it today. Uh, the first document being dated roughly between AD 300 to 330. Uh, there's an inscription that describes a girl who was born as a pagan, but was baptized and became a Christian. Prior to this term's usage, usually Christians would designate um, others other than Christians as, you know, Greeks or Jews or Gentiles and Jews, the term for nations. Where scholarship agrees, however, is that the term pagan and paganism were taken hold of and were moved into a religious meaning and utilized to describe those who believed in false gods and performed for them rituals, practices, customs, etc., right? In essence, paganism, the term, because it was utilized by Christians in the 4th century, came to denote those groups that were non-Christian polytheists. So technically, they were distinct from Jews. They were polytheists who were non-Christians. Now, I wouldn't be me if I didn't point out the slight irony that I saw in this was that these Christians developed this idea of paganism that was non-Christian polytheism at the same time that they were also participating in Easter. And so while modern Christians are using this term pagan that these same Christians gave them, they're also calling their practices pagan, which is, again, I think a little bit 
ironic. And it becomes more so that way whenever you realize that many evangelicals think that this is the time period when Christianity wholesale became uh, corrupted via Nicaea and Constantine, a myth that plagues modern evangelicals and betrays a lack of church history, but nonetheless, I digress. So all of this shows that paganism is a broad term, um, especially in the era of neo-paganism, that is, uh, the world in which we live today, where paganism is kind of becoming a fad today. And so you have people who are, uh, you know, trying to practice, you know, Norse polytheism or going back to Greek polytheism. It's, it's a thing. So neo-paganism is a thing. It's very broad. And paganism overall reaches around the globe with various histories and practices and various appropriations of other groups because pagans were syncretistic. Uh, paganism utilizes nearly anything and everything in the natural world for honoring a deity or deities throughout history and have a variety of practices that are too broad to focus on here. But the point should be quite clear. Paganism denotes the dedication to a deity and pagan practices, rituals, etc. are focused towards that deity you have adopted. We are talking a conscious and intentional worship of a pagan deity and using things for that worship. Further complicating matters is the reality that pagans have utilized everything, ranging from wood to water to fire, for their pagan symbols. But these symbols are not owned by pagans and only become pagan when there is worship of a deity involved. The irony here is that Christians will hardly stop using fire, water, and wood because pagans use them, but they will refuse to go near eggs and rabbits. Furthermore, things like toilet paper and toothbrushes, though being pagan at their inception and origin, do not evoke a deity when being used in our day-to-day -day lives. And I have yet to meet a Christian who has abandoned these items because of their pagan origins. This principle will come into play later, but it can be summarized as follows here. Now, pagans cannot claim God's creation, creatures, etc. as their own. If we gave pagans everything that they have utilized for their idolatry, we would have little left. For now, it is sufficient to say that if something is not being used for the worship of a pagan deity, then it is not pagan. There are few things, such as in Wicca and stuff like that, that are especially designed for that purpose that is different than something natural like wood, fire, eggs, rabbits, etc. Okay. Now, there is something that complicates these discussions even more, and that goes back into the seasonal discussion that I brought up earlier. And that is essentially this misconception that if something revolves around a season or a particular time frame or observes natural phenomena like the equinox, then it must be pagan inherently. Now, the reality is that pagans, because of their agricultural roots, had major events based on seasons, lunar calendars, solar calendars, and so forth. In fact, this was the case within the era of the Israelites as well. This is not um, a hidden fact, right? In the ancient Near East, those people, quote, observed many special sacred occasions at various times of the year, such as the beginnings of the months, one or both of the equinoxes and seasons tied to the agricultural cycle, end quote. And that's from, um, from behind the scenes of the Old Testament, worship and sacrifice and festivals in the ancient Near East. So things like that have led people to conclude that because Easter falls in the spring and has spring themes, it must be pagan. It must be a pagan spring festival, right? And so why does this complicate our discussions? Well, simply because, quote, Israelite festivals were similar to other ancient Near Eastern festivals in that they revolved around the agricultural cycle, 
celebrated the sovereignty and benefits of their deity and harvest that he provided, including special festival offerings, provided the renewal of the cult by purification of the sanctuary, and in several cases involved feasting by the people. However, the Israelite festivals were simpler than many of their ancient Near Eastern festivals, and some Israelite sacred occasions were more unique in that they explicitly commemorated the historical deliverance of the nation by their deity. And that is from the same source. And so the issue should be obvious here. And things are further complicated in the reality that humans rarely have original thoughts. And themes around seasons find parallels globally because of the agricultural focus and the predictability of seasons. This means that there is overlaps in observations in nature and themes in particular seasons and in the festivals that fall within those seasons. For example, why is certain living greenery symbol of life in winter? Because everything else has died. There's only some greenery left. Uh, why does spring have so many symbols of new life? Because agriculturally, this is when things were, quote, springing to life, end quote. Uh, these aren't profound thoughts. They're observations of God's created order and seasons. The fact that a season such as spring is associated with new life, restoration, and baby animals doesn't make it inherently pagan. It just demonstrates the predictability of human minds as it observes God's created world. Now, this point is usually dismissed. And so what I want to do is use Passover as an example because, as we will see later, Easter is in close connection to Passover. And if you didn't know, Passover is known as the Spring Festival. MyJewishLearning.com begins his explanation on Passover and the spring with the following, quote, The Torah places great stress on the fact that the Passover occurs in the spring. In biblical times, the month in which the holiday fell was called Aviv, spring. During the first exile in Babylon, the months were given Babylonian names. Passover's month was named Nisan. I don't know if it's Nissan, Nissan. I never get that one right. Uh, anyway, although the name shifted, the Hebrews upheld the Torah's insistence on the length of spring and Passover. Biblical language and symbols point to the spring as the proper season for deliverance. The rebirth of the earth after winter is nature's indication that life overcomes death. Spring is nature's analog to redemption. Life's blossoming, breaking winter's death grip gives credence to the human yearning for liberation, end quote. So first take note that that paragraph could easily be applied to a Easter sermon. Um, so aside from this paragraph being similar to how Christians would speak about the resurrection around Easter time in the early church and today, this type of language is present in various literature around the ancient and modern world, both in pagan literature, Jewish literature, and of course Christian literature. The reason is simple. We are not deaf, blind, or dumb to the seasons God has put in place and themes will resonate across the world because of God's general or natural revelation. We can see these patterns, we see what's occurring in this world, and we draw proper illustrations and analogies from them. Now, ancient Jews using similar spring themes as pagans around them made Passover no more pagan than Easter is for having similar themes. I would actually argue that modern Christians have lost some of this natural observance and the parallels that ancient Christians would draw, but that's a little bit of a distraction. And I think that really this observation is important. I mean, even whenever you look at things like Hanukkah, Christmas, and winter solstice celebrations, and you compare the imagery that's used in those celebrations, they're all roughly the same because we all observe things that are happening in winter that we can draw parallels from, like light in the darkness after the darkest day of the year. So just because something is around a season and has similar themes in a season because it observes the natural creation does not make it inherently pagan. Um, so what does make something pagan? That is what makes something dedicated to a polytheistic deity? That's it. That's the answer. They need to be dedicated to a polytheistic deity. For example, an altar 
used between various temples and churches means nothing without altar being used for the worship of a particular deity. An altar is not inherently pagan, no more than Abraham's various altars were inherently Canaanite. What made it an altar to a pagan deity was that it was dedicated to the pagan deity and it was enclosed in a temple for said deity with designs unmistakably designed for that deity. So this is to say that if you are going to claim something is pagan, then the following needs to be touched on. One, you have to actually abide by the meaningful definition of paganism. Two, you have to be able to identify the deity being worshipped. And three, you have to demonstrate that said deity is being worshipped via the items, practices, etc. involved. And by the time we get through this and we go through Ostara and Ishtar, whenever you can't find connections between uh, eggs and bunnies and Ostara and Ishtar, you are left needing to identify a deity and de demonstrating how that deity is being worshipped through those symbols. But the problem is that those are such common spring symbols that you can't pin that down. And whenever I've looked, I've only found them connected in relation to Easter to 17th century Germans who are basically having kids entertaining themselves around the season with common spring themes. Um, but we're going to move on. Uh, so those are the preliminaries of what is pagan? Well, it's not inherently being around a season. It's not having season themes. It's not... Uh, random items. It is being dedicated to a particular polytheistic pagan deity and using items for the worship of said deity. So let's get into a tale of two terms, which is probably going to be our hardest section, in my opinion. Um, it would be dishonest to say that this was an easy issue, um, but it would also be equally dishonest to load it with conspiracy as many others do. Um, so what is the issue we're discussing? We're discussing specifically the term Easter itself. Where does it come from? Is it connected to some pagan deity? Now, while some will move to erroneously claim that Easter is connected to an ancient goddess named Ishtar, which will be discussed below, a more meaningful argument is that there is a connection between Easter and a goddess that may have existed named Ostara. And that is spelled E-O-S-T. Re. Um, what isn't often expressed, however, is that there is more debate on the subject than the certainty of the internet allows for. In fact, there is much debate on the subject with the two positions by scholars being A, there is no connection given a lack of evidence, and B, there is a possible connection yet difficult to prove because of a lack of evidence. This means that the certainty that individuals posit on the subject is, at best, a possibility, but is one that is doubtful and difficult to prove. Our earliest known reference to Ostara comes from the 8th century monk Bede, who wrote about the month of April being called Ostara Month. And I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly. It, it kind of looks like it would be pronounced Ostara Manoth. Um, regardless, he wrote that the month of April would be called Ostara Manoth in Old English in honor of the goddess Ostara. So some scholars believe that this is evidence that the Christian holiday of Easter has its roots in pre-Christian pagan celebrations of the spring equinox associated with Ostara. However, other scholars have pointed out that there simply is no evidence of a pre-Christian festival of Ostara and that Bede's reference is the only known mention of her. In his article, The Origin of the Name of Easter, A Textual Perspective, J. Edward Walters argues that the connection between Easter and Ostara is tenuous at best, and that Bede's reference to the goddess is the only evidence we have for her existence. Walters, among others, suggests that the name Easter may actually derive from the Old High German word, Eostron, 
I think I said that right, which means dawn, and which was used to describe the rising of the sun on the spring equinox. And so there are a lot of discussions around Bede and the reliability of his testimony, but nonetheless, what we have um, been saying so far stands. The connection is at best doubtful and difficult to prove. It's a possibility, but it's doubtful and difficult to prove. Now, a more accessible discussion on the subject is found in, actually at Answers in Genesis by Robert Pat Patterson. I think it's Patterson. Um, the article is, is the name Easter a pagan origin? And it covers quite a bit. It begins by introducing readers to individuals who were um, involved heavily in propagating the various claims of alleged pagan syncretism um, with in regards to Easter, namely with the intention of arguing against the Roman Catholic Church. And really, this is a lot of the stuff that gets repeated today. Now, one of the individuals, Ralph Woodrow, had a book called The Babylon Mystery Religion, and it claimed that Ostara was connected to Easter. But, interestingly enough, Woodrow would actually shift his position and update his work, now called The Babylon Connection? Question mark. And in this updated book, he now demonstrates the false conclusions and methodology of the individual that he relied on for his first volume, and that individual that he relied on was Alexander Hislop. And Alexander Hislop is no doubt linked to many of the myths we see today. In fact, his book gets quoted quite a bit to me, at least his assertions and claims and connections. Now, while Woodrow would once utilize Hislop's work and support it, he now does not, but his first edition is the one that is often appealed to. Um, I've seen that one cited a couple times too, uh, but he doesn't hold to that position anymore. But with all that said, Hislop is ultimately where the connection between Ostara, Easter, and Ishtar comes from. Yet Hislop's reasoning is incomprehensible, and his case largely rests upon the idea that because there are similarities between the sounds of the deity's names, that is enough to prove his claim that they are connected. They are one and the same. What do I mean? Because the words sound the same, because Easter sounds close enough to Ostara and Ishtar, they must be connected. Uh, this obviously becomes a wormhole of problems when considering numerous terms that sound the same yet have no connection. Uh, for example, what is stopping an individual from saying that the biblical figure Esther is Ishtar, which has closer resemblances than Ishtar and Easter do? Um, in fact, some skeptics actually make that claim that Ishtar and Esther do have a connection. But regardless, the, the logic just becomes this rabbit hole that, of guessing based off of how something sounds. Now, as the article by Patterson moves into the discussion on Bede and the connection of Ostara, Patterson explains that the English and German terms may have been developed independent of the goddess or could be related to her in some shape or form. Now, others will argue that Easter has its root in the German word for resurrection. Nick Sayers will say as much, quote, because the English Anglo-Saxon language originally derived from the Germanic, there are many similarities between the German and English. Many English writers have referred to the German language as the mother tongue. The English word Easter is of a German-Saxon origin, not a Babylonian, as Alexander Hislop falsely claimed. The German equivalent is Oster, and Ostern being a modern-day equivalent. It is related to Ost, which means the rising of the sun, or simply East. He goes on to point out that this word comes from an older form of a word that simply means resurrection, um, or Easter without an A meaning first, and stern meaning to stand. The two words combine to form Eastern, which is an old German form 
of the modern day in German for resurrection. As Patterson explains, quote, in the Hebrew, Passover is Pascha. The Greek form is simply a transliteration and takes the form Pascha. Virtually all languages refer to Easter as either a transliterated form of Pascha or use resurrection in the name. English and German stand apart in their use of Easter or Ostern to refer to the celebration of the resurrection, end quote. Uh, and this is seen in early German and English translations of the Bible. Uh, John Wycliffe, who translated the New Testament in English in 1382, translated from the Latin Vulgate and merely transliterated the word Pascha to Pasch rather than translating it. Martin Luther, in his German New Testament in 1522, would choose the term Oster to refer to Passover, both in instances before and after the resurrection. Um, the most notable translation for our purposes here is the work of William Tyndale. And if you don't know, William Tyndale is the first to translate the Bible into English from the Hebrew and Greek. In his New Testament, he uses the word Easter to refer to Passover or to translate Pascha. In Tyndale's translation, he would utilize the term 29 times in the New Testament occurrences. But whenever it came to the Old Testament translation, he coined the term Passover and used it within the Old Testament, likely realizing that Easter um, in its English context being connected to the resurrection would be anachronistic. This humorously means two things. And again, I wouldn't be me if I didn't point this stuff out. One, Easter technically predates Passover as an English term. And two, the individual who coined Passover for the English-speaking world was content using Easter in his translation of the New Testament. Now, following Tyndale's English Bible, the Matthews Bible of 1537 utilizes Passover in the Old Testament and Easter in various chapter summaries. The Great Bible of 1539 would use Passover as well in the Old Testament and Easter in 15 New Testament passages. But over time, translations would replace Easter with Passover, and this is seen particularly in the Geneva Bible and the Bishop's Bible, and eventually in the King James Bible. But what's interesting is that the King James Bible, for debated reasons, retains Easter in one occurrence in Acts 12.4. Some argue it's theological, others argue it's accidental, but this is, this is ultimately irrelevant for our particular focus. So Patterson summarizes the discussion as follows, quote, it was seen from the translations of Luther and Tyndale that by 1500, the word Oster or Easter simply referred to the time of Passover feast and had no association with the pagan goddess Ostara. Even if the word had an origin in her name, the usage had changed so much to a degree that Luther was comfortable referring to Christ as the Osterlam or Easter lamb. On the other hand, Cruz's resurrection etymology is also consistent with this passage and Luther referred to Christ as the resurrection lamb. Likewise, Tyndale was comfortable referring to Christ as the Easter lamb. To suggest that these men thought of their savior in terms of the sacrificial offering of a pagan goddess is quite absurd in light of the writings and translations of other portions of scripture. Even the translators of the KJV, who relied heavily on Tyndale's work, chose to use Easter in the post-resurrection context of Acts 12.4. Using a word that means resurrection, would not make sense to describe the Passover festivals prior to the resurrection of Christ. However, Luther still used Oster consistently in his New Testament. So in the same vein as these English translators of the Bible, uh, Easter is used in many English translations of ancient Christian works and in church histories. You'll find this in Philip Schaff's editions, and you'll find this in Creeds and Confessions, in translations of the Anti-Nicene Fathers and the Nicene Writers. 
where Easter is used as the term to designate the celebration of the resurrection. Paul Mayer, in his edition of Eusebius' Church History, if you don't know, Eusebius is a church historian from the 4th century, he uses the term Easter, and he notes in the footnotes that the Greek Pascha Paschal Festival, or Passover, is translated as Easter for the benefit of modern readers, a term used only later in church history. End quote. Furthermore, the three-volume Encyclopedia of Ancient Christianity, written by various scholars, utilizes the term as well as modern church historian Nick Needham. Uh, this is, you find this everywhere. And the reason why is quite straightforward, that until widespread propagation of this idea that Easter was a pagan word, Christians understood it as a celebration of the resurrection. Now, while many who are skeptical of Easter will simply reject this and boil it down to, well, the wholesale corruption of the church, I simply reject that assessment and have a difficult time understanding how the term, if being pagan and inherently so, became so well used as a translation of Pascha for the time that it did. Even if the doubtful possibility that Easter is connected to Ostara is true, history has long forgotten Ostara, as we don't even know if she exists, in the same way that many who put on a product of Nike have no idea that Nike is a pagan deity. Of course, that doesn't go to say that Nike is a good company. We can talk about all their problems some other time. So to summarize this section, the term Easter became and remains a traditional and normative term for the commemoration of the resurrection, of course, in English. It helpfully differentiates between the Jewish Passover, that is the Passover without regard to the resurrection and apart from the Christian tradition, and the Christian observance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as our Pascha lamb. Easter was utilized because Pascha was celebrated in the spring, and Easter was an English term to denote the season, or as Bede stated, the month. What we have is Easter as the, the traditional Old English name, a translation of Pascha for the holiday commemorating the resurrection. As we noted before, when it comes to translating Pascha, Germanic languages are the oddballs out. In other languages, there are more resemblances to Pascha. In fact, within the Greek-speaking world, Easter is often referred to as the Paschal Feast uh, to this day. But they also recognize that Easter is an English translation of such. So from here on, I will be referring to the commemoration of the resurrection or resurrection day as Easter as we eventually move into the history of Easter. Um, it is important before we move into the history of Easter to note one thing, that while Easter as a term was developed later on and developed dependent upon the development of the English language, the celebration of the resurrection predates Bede's account of Ostara mentioned above by many, many years. What I mean is this, even if you disagree with the name or designation of, quote, Easter, end quote, because you feel as if it may be a Germanic goddess named Ostara, the celebration of the resurrection was occurring in the ancient Christian world before the term Easter came to designate the celebration. One can call it Pascha if they desire, or Resurrection Day. They can call it, you know, something other than Easter, but it's still an ancient celebration. That said, let's move into Ishtar and Easter. As it was stated prior... There is often this idea that Easter is connected to Ishtar, which for Alexander Hislop was the case because their names were close enough in sound to prove a connection. But it is not usually Hislop's work that is cited on this point, but a never-dying meme based on one particular meme dating from 2013. The meme was originally posted on an atheist page, the Richard Dawkins Foundations for Reason and Science, and continues to make the rounds to this day. 
The meme, as it was originally posted, said, quote, Easter was originally a celebration of Ishtar, the Assyrian and Babylonian goddess of fertility and sex. Her symbols, like the egg and the bunny, were and still are fertility and sex symbols. Or did you actually think eggs bunny had anything to do with the resurrection? After Constantine decided to Christianize the empire, Easter was changed to represent Jesus. But at its roots, Easter, which is how you pronounce Ishtar, is all about celebrating fertility and sex. The problem is, regardless of how many people believe it, Christians included, this claim is not supported by historical or linguistic evidence, and it has been debunked over and over again. Even individuals who want to make a connection between Ostara and Easter have admitted that the Ishtar claim has no ground in history. There is simply no reason to believe it unless you simply want to, and a simple reading about the, the, the goddess Ishtar and her history and her symbols and of Easter makes this abundantly clear. Furthermore, what is interesting is that the meme that began this domino effect has actually been redacted by the Facebook page's own parent page. The Center of Inquiry in 2021 has an article entitled Holy Ishtar, Our Own False Claims Rise from the Dead, end quote, and goes on to say, quote, here's the thing, it's not true, end quote. To just quote the source on the point, they say this, Quote, in the years that this meme has been circulating, several outlets have posted refutations, most recently in a news service, which is how it came to our attention. As the article points out, Easter is derived from an old high Germ German word, Osterum, which simply means, well, the East, and also refers to the dawn. The piece also notes that there may be a connection to a different pagan goddess, Ostara, but apparently that is mostly speculative. Take note of that. And as for Ishtar, the holiday has nothing to do with her, and no, Ishtar is not pronounced Easter either. At best, it may be pronounced Ishtar, but they are simply are not related words. Religious traditions evolve over time, and Easter almost certainly had its roots that go back further than Christianity, with influences from older religions and secular traditions. So even if the Ishtar meme was true, it wouldn't make any of the supernatural claims associated with the holiday any more or less credible. It remains that there are no such things as gods or goddesses, Jesus of Nazareth never rose from the dead, and magic Bunny does not deliver eggs to children. But more to the point, we were wrong, end quote. As the article mentions, the claim has been refuted a number of times in various capacities, and while the article doesn't address all the claims in detail, we'll find the claims regarding Constantine debunked below. So some simple time researching leads one to see that both secular and Christian sources finding agreement that Ishtar having connections with Easter lacks any meaningful evidence. Now, I treated the meme with a fraction more effort in Holidays in the Feast because this um, this redaction didn't exist at the time, as far as I was aware. Uh, 2021, I don't remember the time frame. But ultimately, the claim hardly deserves any more attention with this redaction out, especially when even mocking atheists who say that Jesus of Nazareth never, never rose from the dead, there's no such thing as gods or goddesses, etc. They're content to concede and argue the point that there is no connection to be made. In fact, I believe in Holidays in the Feast, I did reference another atheist group that was telling atheists to stop using this argument because it was poor. To this, I simply say, if a backhanded article by atheists can admit that there's no connection, I would hope that Christians could be honest and admit such as well. So let's move on to the history of Easter. As mentioned prior, from here I'll be referring to the commemoration of the resurrection, Pascha or Resurrection Day, as Easter. And that really becomes helpful consistently because my historical sources also referred to as Easter. So let's just jump right into it. When we look at volumes on church history, church historians are in agreement that Easter is 
the most ancient Christian feast or observation in the Christian church. The Protestant church historian, Nick Needham, who, if you haven't picked up his volumes on church history, do yourself a favor and do it. They're extremely accessible. If you don't like history, you will now. He's excellent. His fifth volume just came out. Um, you won't regret it. Anyway, Nick Needham in his volume, um, 2000 Years of Christ's Power, volume one, states that Christian worship revolved around Sunday or the Lord's Day, as the early church called it, the day on which the Lord Jesus had risen from the dead. However, this weekly pattern of worship was allied to a yearly pattern which revolved around Easter. End quote. So the gathering of Christians on Sunday is attested in not only the New Testament, but in our earliest descriptions of worship outside the New Testament, such as Justin Martyr. Uh, Justin Martyr gives us our first lengthy description of worship outside the New Testament documents. And he says, quote, On the day called Sunday, there is a meeting of all believers who live in the town or the country, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read for as long as time will permit, end quote. Of course, there's more to it than that. It's an, it's an interesting piece to read. But it's just kind of solidifying the point that on Sunday, there was a meeting of all believers. Um, Drobner, in his article on Easter homily, states the following, quote, Easter was not only the most ancient annual feast, but also Christianity's fundamental highest and including Pentecost's longest feast. The two most ancient and sole exempt Easter homilies from the first three centuries are dated to the same period of the oldest information that has survived about the annual feast of the Christian Easter. End quote. So this agreement on the early practice of Easter can be found in various literature, but it would be helpful to speak about the Christian perspective about this observance because of its close relation to Pascha, Passover, etc. What we find is that Jesus died during the Jewish Passover with uh, the specific chronology about how things occurred and when they occurred specifically being debated, uh, even to this day, based off of um, how John and the Synoptic Gospels relate the information. But the timing was not seen as a mere coincidence for the early Christians. Uh, this is especially so given Paul's word about Christ as our Paschal Lamb and our supper being a Passover meal and 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8, taking Passover themes and applying them to spiritual matters. Yet, since the early church, there were two types of early Easter observances. I and mean, this needs to be mentioned because sometimes this dichotomy is made far too extreme. So in the ascetic type, there was a focus on Christology, that is the doctrine of Christ. Um, and it was an Easter observance with a focus on the past and the expectation of the future eschaton, that is the end times, right? This type of observance is usually connected to those of the quarter deciman persuasion, uh, particularly seen in Melito Sardis. And quarter deciman is simply a term pointing to those who observed Easter at the same time that the Jews observed Passover. And this position would be the center of the Easter debate that we will discuss in a minute. Now, while this Christological focus is usually connected to those who observed Easter on the Passover, Quote, we know that the Roman Easter was not different from the ascetic feast in the content, but only in the date. The origin of the Roman Easter, however, could also date back to the primitive church. And that is Rordoff's article on Easter in the Encyclopedia of Ancient Christianity. The second type of Easter observance was dubbed the Alexandrian type, and it had a focus on a passage of the church from the shadow to the reality, and thus focused a bit more on the work of Christ as it was applied to Christ's people. It focused more on the here and now effects of Christ's work and the call to live in this tension of the already not yet. Rordoff, however, notes that 
there would eventually be a synthesis between these two views by Latin writers who based themselves primarily on the ascetic or Christological tradition, but they also incorporated the Alexandria tradition. And some of the writers that synthesized these two views are, you know, Ambrose, Jerome, and Augustine. So Easter would not only be a commemoration of the resurrection, but also be a point where uh, new Christians would be baptized. And unlike a lot of modern um, Protestant circles, it was not just a one-day event, but included a fast and a period observing Holy Week and stuff like that. There are Protestants who observe that. Um, in the Reformed tradition, you have some within the Presbyterian camp that will participate in Easter, others who say that it's against the regulative principle of worship. And then, in, of course, Baptist circles, you'll have those who do Holy Week or some who just do Easter and so on and so forth. Um, so there is a little bit of difference there. Now, as hinted above, while Easter was observed early on in the church, it had its controversy, and that's what we're going to talk about now. Uh, this controversy, however, was not in regards to whether or not to observe an annual commemoration of the resurrection, but when to observe an annual commemoration of the resurrection. Nick Needham helpfully summarized the controversy surrounding Easter in the early church as follows, quote, Easter was the Christian equivalent of the Jewish Passover. Christ had died at the same time that the Passover lamb was sacrificed. So Christians celebrated the Savior's death at Easter when the Jews were celebrating the Passover. The churches in Asia Minor observed Easter on the precise day of Passover, the 14th of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar, which was not necessarily a Sunday. But the churches in Palestine, Alexandria, and Rome always observed Easter on a Sunday, the one that fell just after the 14th of Nisan. This caused a serious controversy in the 2nd century, but at the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, the custom of Palestine, Alexandria, and Rome triumphed." End quote. So in essence, in all areas where Christianity resided, Easter was observed, yet for those within Asia Minor, they observed Easter on the same precise day that the Jews were traditionally observing Passover. What needs to be pointed out here is that this is not a mere continuance of Passover that many Christians are insisting on today, but Easter is being celebrated in accordance with the calendar of the Jews. What I mean that Easter is being celebrated? The Passover is being observed because it is the time when Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, not because they were observing the Passover itself. It coincided with the Passover, so some were observing Easter on the Passover, but the majority were observing it on the Sunday that followed the Passover. Instead of it being the Passover in the sense that the Jews understood it, it was now a Christian Passover as it celebrated the personal work of Jesus Christ, who was our Paschal Lamb. There's a distinction there. There's a continuity and a discontinuity in Easter and Passover that needs to be understood. Um, it would be a mistake to miss this distinction. And now, while many individuals will look to this group in Asia Minor and say that they celebrated Passover and Rome overtook that practice and imposed their uh, papist impositions, this is simply not the case. Christendom celebrated Easter which at best can be understood as a Christianized version of Passover, as the ascetic tradition may have included, but was not focused on, the Exodus, which was the historical central event of the original Passover. Instead, the focus had been completely changed to Christology and the realization that Christ was the substance of the Passover. Yes, the Passover pointed to Christ and was a shadow of Christ, but the focus for the Jews who became Christian had completely shifted to Christ. This is not the old covenant Passover. This is a new Passover, which is why some people will call it the Christian Passover, Paschal Feast, um, whatever language you want to use for that. So this is not to say that there was 
this big discontinuity. We still see connections being made with the Exodus and Melito Sardis' homily, but this was not merely continuing the Old Testament Passover, which included pilgrimages to Jerusalem, sacrifices in the temple, and so forth, because those things were no longer possible in a post-80-70 context. And I personally find this important because many portray this as if this was merely a joining of the Jews at Passover, or Gentiles essentially becoming Jewish and adopting the Old Covenant. But even for the Jews themselves at this time, the Passover is being radically changed because of the destruction of the temple, and eventually the destruction of Jerusalem would change it further, but then also you have this disbandment of the Sanhedrin who were integral to determining when the Passover season would take place. This is also important for those who want Christians to observe a Passover Seder, but the Passover Seder developed after the destruction of the temple, uh, and this would arise years later. So as noted already, the contents of the festival between Christians were the same between the ascetic and the Roman traditions. These traditions were distinctly Christian in focusing on the Messiah that the Jews did not accept. So contrary to what many well-meaning Christians believe, Easter was not being celebrated as merely a Passover, and Easter was not distinguished from the practice of those in Asia Minor as if they were two separate things. That simply was not the debate. The debate was the timing of when to celebrate Easter. And I think that this is important because some individuals will say that Easter is forbidden and Passover is observed, but they won't apply this to those in Asia Minor who are observing Easter because they conceptualize it as a just a Passover whenever it was really Easter in accordance with the Hebrew calendar. And so the argument was whether or not this observance of Easter should occur, quote, when the Jews were celebrating Passover, end quote, or not. For the majority of Christians elsewhere, such as in Palestine, they would instead observe Easter on the Sunday that immediately followed the Jewish Passover. Amada summarizes the controversy as follows, quote, in the second century, the churches of Rome and Alexandria and numerous other Eastern and Western churches were celebrating the Easter celebration of Christ's resurrection on the Sunday immediately following the full moon of spring. The churches in Asia Minor, however, the premier of which was Ephesus, celebrated Easter on the 14th day of the full moon of spring, the 14th of Nisan, according to the Hebrew calendar. This practice drew inspiration from the Johannine literature, according to which Jesus, who was the true Paschal Lamb, was sacrificed the same day on which the Jews were celebrating the Passover. Eusebius, the Christian church historian, mentions numerous synods in both the East and the West over the course of the second century that decreed that the mystery of the Lord's resurrection from the dead should not be on any other day than Sunday, and only on that day should Easter fast come to an end. Eusebius also reports the testimony of Irenaeus of Lyons of the first effort to resolve the conflict between the two liturgical practices, end quote. So at this point, it is important to stress again that this observance of Easter was across Christendom. This is in the second century, that is AD 100 to 200, before Constantine was born, and it was not exclusive to Rome. It was in Palestine, Rome, and Alexandria. It is true that the leadership in Rome pushed harder for the view of these other churches in the literature, but this was the practice of everyone but Asia Minor by all historical accounts. The last point is important because many individuals will make this out to be a papist Romanish invention of the Catholic Church, when in fact, this was a universal practice even in Palestine. When it comes to the differences and the dating, we find both the East and West agreeing that Sunday, the Lord's Day, was the proper time to observe Easter against the minority view that Easter should be celebrated on the Jewish Passover. Stuart Skies points out, quote, Numerous methods for observing Easter and calculating the dates on which it had to be celebrated were already known in ancient Christianity. Nonetheless, the Council of Nicaea imposed the Alexandrian calculation on all the churches of the empire. 
This date was similar to the practice in Rome. As part of this calculation, authorities kept in mind the spring equinox. Therefore, permission to celebrate Easter before this time was not granted. Some Christians in Syria, however, whose method of calculating Easter did not take into account the equinox, were not aware of this rule. For this reason, their Easter was occasionally celebrated on a different date. End quote. So while many have made much about this rule regarding the spring equinox, saying that it's a pagan system to calculate um, when to celebrate Easter rather than you know over and against a Jewish system, the reality is that the, the equinox played a role in both Jewish and Christian calendars whenever it came to festivals. Um, how much of a role it played is debated, but as we observed early on, the Jewish month of Nisan, when Passover would fall, was to be the spring season. Posner, in his article on how does the spring equinox relate to the timing of Passover, states, While the Sanhedrin presided in Jerusalem, there was no set calendar. They would evaluate every year to determine whether it should be declared a leap year. Several factors were considered in the course of their deliberations. The primary factor, which overrode all others, was the spring equinox. If the spring equinox would fall later than the first half of Nisan, then the year was automatically declared to be a leap year. However, it wasn't enough for Passover to fall after the equinox when it was officially spring. Spring-like conditions needed to be evidenced. In the 4th century CE, the sage Hillel uh, II foresaw the disbandment of the Sanhedrin and understood that we would no longer be able to follow a Sanhedrin-based model calendar. So Hillel and his rabbinical court established a perpetual calendar, which is followed to this day, end quote. And so at this point, a question arises, why was Easter being celebrated on Sunday if we are commemorating the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in accordance with a historical date that is the Passover, according to the Jewish calendar? The answer is simpler than we might realize. Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday, and this was seen as the first day of the new creation, Early Christian writers viewed this time as being the climax of the history of salvation and anticipation of what was to come. This is that tension between already not yet that we talk about a lot. Christians gathered on the first day of the week, and we see this in the New Testament in Acts 27, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Revelation 1, 10. And this gathering on the first day of the week is also seen in post-New Testament literature, such as Justin Martyr that we referenced earlier. Um, it was every week where Christians would gather on the Lord's Day and recollect the work of Christ with, in various periods of Christian history, uh, the timing would change, but a Passover meal. And the Passover meal in the Christian context was the Lord's Supper because Christ is our Paschal Lamb. Furthermore, the Lord's Day was significant as the dawn of the new creation. Usually Christians would point to 2 Corinthians 5.17 to point this out. And sometimes it was referred to as the eighth day of creation. And Christians often said that, on this day of the initiation of the new creation, we look forward to Christ's return. Jerome, the 5th century Christian writer, would simply say, Sunday is the day of the resurrection. It is the day of Christians. It is our day, end quote. Now, the debate between various Christians was this. Do we commemorate the historical event Easter on the Jewish Passover because it occurred on the Passover, or... Do we commemorate the historical event Easter on Sunday because it occurred on a Sunday? And I think that whenever you frame it that way, things get put into perspective a little bit more. Both are concerned with retaining an, a historical observance within the month of spring. And in both of these cases, the dates moved around because it was based on when the Passover would occur. But for the Passover, according to the Jewish calendar, could land on any day of the week. And that day of the week may not have any particular significance to the Christian faith. 
while the Lord was resurrected on a Sunday. So both groups were concerned with commemorating the historical event around the historical time in which it occurred, right? But the majority of Christians found Sunday to be the more significant day because it was on a Sunday that Jesus was resurrected and because of the significance of the Lord's Day as the beginning of the new creation. Having the Lord's Day celebrated on a Wednesday, for example, made little sense for the majority of Christians. So at this time, uh, Christians were attempting to discuss this and find agreement so that they could all agree to participate at the same time in Easter. In the documents of Nicaea in 325, we do not find the invention of Easter. As we have observed, it was already in practice and letters between Christians were debating its dating already. Instead, at Nicaea, we have a document that agreed with the earlier synods that Easter should be observed on the Sunday following the Jewish Passover. Now, while Nicaea tried to standardize this practice so that all Christendom could commemorate the resurrection at the same time, divergences still occurred because of different calendars. Uh, this is actually still reflected today if you look at the Western Church versus the Eastern Church and where Easter falls on their calendars. And so before moving into our applications, we can quote the church historian Eusebius, uh, who was writing in the 4th century, quote, At that time, no small controversy erupted because all of the Asian dioceses thought that the Savior's Paschal or Easter festival should be observed according to ancient tradition on the 14th day of the moon, on which the Jews had been commanded to sacrifice a lamb. On that day, it was necessary to finish the fast, no matter what day of the week it might be. In churches throughout the rest of the world, however, it was not customary to celebrate in this way, since according to apostolic tradition, they maintain the view that still prevails, that the fast ends on the day of our Savior's resurrection, Sunday. Synods and conferences of elders were held on this issue, and all were of one opinion in formulating a decree for the church through letters everywhere that the mystery of the Lord's resurrection from the dead should be celebrated on no other day than Sunday, and only on that day should we observe the end of the Easter fast, end quote. Um, Eusebius also notes that this opinion was held by those in Palestine with representatives in Jerusalem, Caesarea, and those in Rome, in Palamas, Gaul, Corinth, etc. So this was not a mere position of Rome. I'm just beating that drum because that's a misconception. Uh, and the letter that was issued from Nicaea reads in part, because it's long, and deals with things like the Arian controversy as follows, quote, We further proclaim to you the good news of the agreement concerning the Holy Easter, that this particular also has been, through your prayers, rightly settled, so that all of our brethren in the East who formerly followed the calculation of the Jews are henceforth to celebrate the said most sacred feast of Easter at the same time with the Romans and yourself and all those who observe Easter from the beginning, end quote. The letter of the emperor on keeping the Easter, which has more unfortunate anti-Semitic rhetoric begins as follows, quote, when the question relative to the sacred festival of Easter rose, it was universally thought that it would be convenient that all should keep the feast on one day for what could be more beautiful and more desirable than to see this festival, though which we receive the hope of immortality celebrated by all with one accord and in the same manner. It was declared to be particularly unworthy for this, the holiest of all festivals to follow the calculation of the Jews who had soiled their hands with the most fearsome of crimes whose minds were blinded, and rejected their customs, we may transmit to our descendants the legitimate mode of celebrating Easter, which we have observed from the time of the Savior's passion to the present day, according to the day of the week. End quote. Um, and unfortunately, as I said above, this agreement was not retained 
due to different calculations and calendars between specifically Alexandria and Rome. And so we find that the discussion would arise numerous times. So ultimately, history is often messy, but still we can move on and ask, well, what are the takeaways? Well, first off, Christianity as a whole observed Easter, and there was not a debate as to whether or not it should be observed, but rather, when should it be observed? By all historical accounts that we have, early Christians, both Jewish and Gentile, observed Easter, an annual celebration of the resurrection, and it was dated in relation to the Passover. Now, it is true that we could argue still to this day about when it should be um, partaken of, um, but Christendom agreed that the observation was permissible and that it was of great importance as the beginning of the new creation. Ultimately, whether or not we observe the resurrection shouldn't be a point of contention, and ultimately, when we observe the resurrection shouldn't be a point of contention if we find agreement that the resurrection is worth commemorating annually. So let's move on to the Passover. A big question has come up in recent years as to whether or not Christians ought to observe the Passover. Uh, and this is ultimately a matter of personal freedom, as we find nowhere in the New Testament the expectations that Gentiles are expected to take on the Old Covenant festivals. Um, and when the church gathered and discussed the expectations of Jewish and Gentile relationships, there was no mention of the Old Covenant Holy Days, and you can see this in Acts 15. Instead, Paul tells individuals to act in accordance with faith and conviction um, in Romans 14, and explicitly speaks to those in Colossae, saying, quote, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ, in Colossians 2, 16-17. Now, there are many who are into the Hebrew Roots movement that disagree with this interpretation of this particular text, and have tried to push back against it. This is... Um, the consistent interpretation made for centuries and is clearly referring to the Jewish law and the Jewish imposition of Jewish law onto um, Gentile Christians. And this really shouldn't be a surprise because we see issues like this, the, these key issues of Jewish identity, such as circumcision being addressed in texts like Galatians, and the sentiment is re repeated on Sabbaths and Holy Days in Romans 14, and there were multiple Sabbaths um, and the Jewish calendar. Now, the passage clearly speaks to first the dietary restrictions, the food and drink to which Gentiles are not bound to, except in Acts 15, uh, the, the church got together and said, you know, for the sake of your Jewish brothers, do not eat meat that has blood remaining in it. Um, and this is also addressed as well in Mark, as well as Acts 10 14, with the episode with Cornelius and Peter. Not only are the dietary restrictions indicated, but the equally weighty issues of, quote, festivals or new moon or a Sabbath, end quote. Now, while the observance of festivals and new moons are common in nearly every society, and so you could say, well, this could be anyone, the inclusion of Sabbath makes it clear that what is in view are the observances of the Jews and the Old Covenant. The Sabbath was distinctly Jewish, marking them from the Gentiles and a key component of Jewish identity. James Dunn, in his commentary on the Greek text of Colossians, says, quote, This point is put beyond dispute when we note that the three terms together, Sabbaths, New Moons, and Feast, was in fact a regular Jewish way of speaking of the main festivals of Jewish religion. In view of later discussions, we should also note that the Essenes claim to have received special revelation regarding the Holy Sabbaths and Glorious Feast, and also the New Moon. We must conclude, therefore, that all the elements in this verse bear a characteristically and distinctively Jewish color that those who cherish them so critically 
must have been Jews of Colossae. Dunn is also helpful here on this point. He says, quote, that circumcision is not also mentioned is puzzling, but the issue clearly lay in the background and the silence here may be sufficiently explained if the Jewish posture overall is more apologetic than evangelistic. Um, he further says, it should be noted that circumcision food laws and Sabbath were recognized by both Jew and Gentile as the most distinctive feature of Jewish way of life based on the law. And those who think that the link with the, quote, elemental forces, end quote, likewise diminishes the case for seeing traditional Jewish concerns here, need simply to see the same link made in Galatians 4, 9 through 10, end quote. So Paul's argument is that the Old Covenant observances pointed to the reality that is found in Christ and that Christians are not under the Mosaic Code. You can also see Romans 6, 14 through 15, 2 Corinthians 2, 4 through 18, Galatians 3, 15, 4 through 7. Um, and so the dietary laws, the festivals, holidays, and Sabbaths were foreshadowing of Christ, and Christians are not expected to live in those shadows. Such a distinction has been made appropriately by Christians for centuries. The shades of those who want Christians to observe Passover differs pretty dramatically, but usually it's modern evangelicals looking for ancient roots uh, that have grabbed onto this idea that we should take on these Old uh, Testament festivals. Um, some range from making it completely obligatory. I've heard some even say that if you do not observe it, you are going to perish. While others call it a personal preference that can bless the lives of the Christians, making them more Old Testament literate. Um, the latter has more merits and is commendable. The former, sadly, is the attitude that cannot be accepted. Um, and it is an attitude that is adopted by many modern evangelicals. Addressing that position in particular, the modern evangelicals approach here has been found erroneous by Jews and Christians alike. The former critique these evangelicals for appropriating key markers of identity found in the Exodus, but also because the Passover Seder's development was apart from Christianity. Christianity Today put out an interesting piece that can be critiqued in its own right. Um, in fact, I'll quote someone who does later on. But it properly points out that the meal today that we know it, the Passover meal that we know today, was developed following the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and thus after the birth of Christianity. This isn't a new idea either, but it can be found in various literature, such as the Biblical Archaeological Society's article on the subject, though the article takes a low view of scripture and actually pits the Gospels against one another, but it brings up valid historical claims about the development of the modern Passover meal. So while the Biblical Archaeological Society article finds disagreements with myself and many other scholars, in fact, if you want to find a great discussion on was Jesus taking uh, a Passover meal at the Last Supper, you can look up Kostenberger's contribution in the book, The Lord's Supper. It's a great book. Um, but nonetheless, there are valid points in the reality that Passover developed after the destruction of the temple. Um, Passover originally had a pilgrimage, it had a priesthood, it had a sacrifices, and what it looked like in Jesus' day is hotly debated beyond that. While Jews commemorate the Passover and the Exodus, they do so in a modified form that developed after Christianity's inception. And because of those missing elements of the first century, such as the priesthood and the temple, it is never observed as the Jews originally observed it. The points of this are simple. One, modern Passovers are modifications, not the same Passover that Jesus observed, and even the system of dating the Passover changed since the time of Jesus. And then two, Passover, as it was developed, was developed alongside Christianity. 
And so this means that it makes little sense for a Christian who is Gentile to partake in a later developed Jewish festival if they're not Jewish themselves. Of course, I've already said that because they're Gentile. What these Christians are doing is they're saying, we're going to observe the Passover, but we're going to Christianize it. But in some sense, that already exists in Easter. And so it's strange to say that there's something different about that, that there's, there's a discontinuity there. So Shane Morrison is an article responding to a piece by Christianity Today, critiques the article, but as this particular qualification. Quote, I would ultimately not participate in any kind of religious or liturgical observance of the Passover Sadar. Grasping the true relationship between Judaism and Christianity is important, but it's even more important if you are a Christian to get your own religion right. In contra Messianic Jews and the Hebrew Roots adherents, Christian theology has historically held that the Old Testament rites, including the Passover meal, has been replaced by the New Testament rites. The two main sacraments of the Hebrew religion, Passover and circumcision, have given way to the two main sacraments of Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which the New Testament explicitly links to these Jewish rites in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 and Colossians 2, 11 through 12. In other words, Christians should not celebrate any form of the Passover Seder in our worship because Christ replaced the Passover meal with his own body and blood and has not authorized us to revert to the old, which the book of Hebrews appropriately calls the types and shadows of the good things to come. Eating a Passover Seder in a Christian church is the equivalent of returning to circumcision or sacrificing bulls and goats. It is a reversion from the fulfilled reality to the unfulfilled shadow. And though Christians have every right to consider the Exodus and all it represents as our own, we believe that we have what the night different from all other nights ultimately prefigured. Christ, as Paul wrote, is our Passover lamb. On the cross, he gave up his unleavened bread of his body, the wine of his blood, and the sweat of his brow. Why would anyone want to return to the sheep and bitter herbs? End quote. So this articulation by Morris is not only defended in the New Testament in various instances, particularly in Hebrews, but it's also the position of the Christians for centuries. In light of this reality, Christians have made their own festivities to celebrate exclusively Christian realities, and whether or not one agrees with that and wants to participate in those is a matter of conscience and debate. Christians should not force the Old Covenant upon Christians, in this case Passover, if one will insist that we should observe Passover because Jesus did it and so should we, then we should all be held to observing the law in all respects. And if one is not willing to even go that far, then they should at least be willing to observe the Passover as Jesus would by the minimal of pilgrimaging to Jerusalem once a year. But on the flip side of that, no Christian should ever force Easter on another Christian either. And I know that that's where it's like, well, what's the point of all this? Ultimately, no holiday is binding on another Christian, and all Christians who observe any day must do so in faith, otherwise it is a sin. From here, personal study of Romans 14 should be conducted as you weigh and measure the issue of Easter and other Christian instituted holidays. If you leave this and you're not convinced of anything I have said, and you're not convinced that Easter is a valid right, if you are not convinced that Easter is not pagan, you should not celebrate it. It is sin. That is what Paul says in Romans 14. That all said, the question of whether or not it is permissible to have holidays that are not established in the text of Scripture, we can address that briefly. Usually this is a matter of someone needing proof text, a specific command to observe a day of the resurrection, uh, but in the other case, the assumption at play is that an annual celebration not explicitly commanded in Scripture is forbidden. Sometimes you get both, sometimes you get one. But either way, um, it becomes problematic when applied to Easter because of this. Most Christians, including critics of Easter, will and have conceded that the celebration of the resurrection is ascertained from the New Testament, a fulfillment of the Passover, and a celebration is done when the assembly gathers to worship God. Why is this a problem? 
Well, because they have already conceded that a commemoration of the resurrection is permissible and going a step more and saying that an annual focus upon the event is permissible is difficult to reject. Um, in many ways, this section is considerably easier than the previous sections, um, but instead of just stopping, uh, we can give a couple of points. Celebrations that are not explicitly commanded in Scripture occur on a day-to-day -day basis as we commemorate events and give thanksgiving for persons and events, especially our conversion, for example. This shouldn't be controversial, and to count every insistence of uh, rejoicing, praises, celebrations in the Bible would take far too long, and this can be seen from Genesis to Revelation. Celebrations regarding who God is and what he has done ripple throughout the text. Sometimes we'll find a patriarch building an altar without an explicit command, or the Israelites uh, celebrating God's providence in the midst of their enemies. Uh, in my book, Holidays in the Feast, I use the example of the completion of the temple in Ezra 3.10-13 and Nehemiah 12. 2 through 43 to point out the natural celebration of God's providence. I further pointed out that the annual celebration of the Festival of Lights, or the Feast of Dedication, or what is also called Hanukkah, was formed on the same basis, God's providential care, long after the Old Testament events, right before the New Testament was penned. Not only did Jews form an extra-biblical holiday, but they brought in symbols common to that season uh, in which it occurred, that is light in the darkness around the winter solstice, and many New Testament scholars see no reason to think that Jesus did not participate in this holiday, which is mentioned in John 10, 22 through 23. Here, Jesus does not rebuke the festivities that are occurring, when elsewhere he is more than willing to clean out the temple courts because of defilement in John 2, 13 through 22. It is hard to believe that God, if he was displeased to the extent that the modern Christians would have us believe about celebrations not explicitly commanded in Scripture, would give the Jews a pass at the Feast of Dedication. But Jesus' focus is on the people's unbelief, not the festivities around him. So in short, I find no reason to believe that extra-biblical celebrations are impermissible, let alone celebrations that are only extra in the sense that we are not told to observe them annually. That is the resurrection, because we do celebrate it every week. If the Jews can formulate an annual holiday celebrating God's providence in history and not be rebuked by God the Son, incarnate for it, I see no reason why Christians cannot commemorate a key event of the gospel, that is the resurrection, which Paul says is so crucial that without the resurrection, faith is futile, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. So let's look briefly at bunnies and eggs, and we're going to disappoint you and burn through it, and it's not going to be what you expect. If you want to hear more treatment on the origins of bunnies and eggs, you can uh, go check out Wesley Huff's video on Eastern Paganism. You can check out Inspiring Philosophy's YouTube video on Eastern Paganism. They discuss these points as well. Um, so it's pointed out early on in this episode that the themes of seasons being tied into holidays is not surprising. Uh, we can pull from Passover. It's called the Spring Festival and how themes of the seasons are seen in God's providence in relation to said holiday. In pagan literature, we find spring being linked to rebirth and resurrection new life, and so forth as well. Um, so to are we just going to throw resurrection and being born again out the window? Of course not. Um, the reason is simple. The seasons make those connections easy. But take what we do know about the Jewish perspective of Passover and the reality that it was on the Passover that Jesus became a Passover lamb for us, died and was buried and rose again. And all of a sudden, Christians have the ultimate picture of both resurrection, new life, and rebirth especially in relation to the new heavens and new earth to come. The imagery was a given. 
I think it would be so strange for them to not make those connections. In fact, I would say it is providential that they made those connections. There have been many sermons, ancient and modern, that have played off of this reality, this, this correlation between the magnificent event of the resurrection and the new life of spring. I think it would be strange for us to, to not expect those type of parallels and imagery and so on and so forth. And so the big question is, well, what about painted eggs and Easter bunnies? As far as I've been able to ascertain, and I've, I've looked quite a bit, and it gets quite tiresome because... Um, really, if we boil it down and we look at scholarship, the, the origin and inception and inclusion of these elements into Easter is unclear and scholars have debated their origin and meaning quite a bit. And from my own reading, what I have picked up is that, um, rabbits and eggs are very common themes in spring time events. And that's just the way it is. But when it became incorporated with Easter and why, we don't really know. A lot of people will chalk it up to um, there seems to be a connection with the Germans in the 17th century uh, children coming up with the Easter hare, uh, which was not a symbol of fertility. But the, the rabbit was, but the hare was not. Um, and basically it became future events to entertain children around the season. And they would turn the eggs into lessons about the resurrection and things like that. Um so anyway, my my overall view on this is this. One, eggs and bunnies are natural symbols of new life and resurrection in global history and spring season. Whether or not one can give pagan exclusive rights to God's design is not debatable. I like I don't even um I actually originally have my notes as is debatable, but it's not debatable. They don't own God's creation. They don't own eggs, they don't own bunnies. Sorry. Uh, point number two, paganism cannot be boiled down to X, Y, and Z is pagan without X, Y, and Z being used in a particular act of worship for a pagan deity. Again, paganism denotes worship of a pagan deity, and a rock without a deity is just a rock. As it was pointed out earlier, pagans have utilized everything for their pagan symbols, and these symbols are not owned by them, and they only become pagan when there is a worship of a deity involved. Pagans cannot claim God's creation, creatures, etc. as their own. And so with that, we're left saying, unless you can point to a specific deity being worshipped through the egg and bunny around Easter time, there's nothing pagan about it. You don't have Ostara and you don't have Ishtar by all historical accounts. But this goes into point three, probably the most important point. Easter does not need to include any of these cultural elements that did, by all accounts that I've read, develop slowly and over time. But they're also not inherently wrong. You don't need the eggs and bunnies and all that stuff to celebrate the resurrection, obviously. At the same time, those elements of spring, celebrating spring around the resurrection, you can call it a springtime festival if you want, is not inherently wrong. Um, I don't see anything wrong with that. Now, I will say this, that the culture has slowly secularized Christian holidays, but this shouldn't be surprising. Um, I mean, look at what happened to St. Patrick's Day, right? St. Patrick's Day was a couple of days away. And that was a day to commemorate a saint who was a slave and who basically dedicated his life to converting people. And, but look what that turned into. It turned into a, a drunk fest. Like, what in the world? Uh, that shouldn't be surprising that the world will flip things like that on its head. And I said this before, and I'll say again, I don't think that the issue with these holidays that were originally Christian in their intention and purpose, which I argue Easter is, um have a problem with paganism. I think they have a problem with secularism and commercialism. Um, I don't think that we should allow them to hijack 
um, Christian holidays. I don't think that we give up biblical marriage just because marriage has been hijacked by the world. Um, and so there's that. One of the objections, one of the weakest objections I see constantly is, well, the world loves Easter. Therefore, how can it be of Christ if it loves Easter? Obviously, it has nothing to do with Jesus. This is a bad argument. The world loves eternal life, too. But what has it done? It does everything it could to remove Jesus from eternal life. You can get to eternal life anyway, but you just got to stay away from Jesus. Why wouldn't they do the same with holidays? These things of lesser importance. Why would, not, why would they not want the benefits without Christ? Same thing goes for eternal life. I think that's a bad argument and people should stop using it. Uh, nonetheless, the history around these elements is hard to confirm one way or another, really. Um, the Easter hair seems to be formed by Lutherans or German children. Like I said, Easter eggs may have originated as symbols of the resurrection and new life. In early Christian tradition, eggs seem to be dyed red to represent the blood of Christ and the new life that his resurrection brought. But again, because of how common rabbits and eggs are, they're going to be used in different contexts for different reasons. Ultimately, the origin and meanings of Easter symbols like eggs and bunnies are complex, multifaceted, and their interpretation has varied across time and cultures. And no one's going to settle it. I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. And so you basically have three different views here. You have people who can see them as symbols as pagan in origin, others who view them as Christian symbols of new life and resurrection, and others who view them as a cultural fun thing for kids to do around the springtime, which also coincides with Easter. Wait, Nick, but you just said that it coincides with spring, therefore it must be pagan. We've already talked about this, guys. Go back to uh, Passover and Easter and all those connections. Um... So individuals can debate those cultural elements until the cows come home, and many have put forward their particular position at vigor. But this is where we're ending. Easter began and was created by Christians as a Christian commemoration of the resurrection of Christ and its history and beginnings have, by all historical accounts, zero ties to paganism. Whether or not pagan elements were brought in later on through the culture and through assimilation or whatever— doesn't change the fact that Easter was originally a Christian holiday. Of course, without a pagan deity to point to, they're just painted eggs and cultural. That said, I have met many individuals who do Easter without eggs and bunnies. We don't do bunnies. We just don't. We don't care to. Um, Easter Sunday for us, we go to the town square in my town, and we worship in the town square, and the gospel is proclaimed in the public square of our town. It's pretty cool, actually. Um, that's how we do Easter. And then we'll go home, we'll have lunch with our family like we always do on Sundays, and then we do go out in the afternoon and let the kids chase around cascarones and bust those open, if you know what those are. It's a, it's a southern thing. But for us, it's just cultural. The main day is focused on the resurrection. Um, and that's how it's been since I've come to the conclusion that Easter is not pagan. Now, the last thing, again, whether or not you want to incorporate any cultural elements, that's that's between you and God having faith. Go study Romans 14 and really sit on it and think through it. And one last thing that comes up is, well, why not just call it Resurrection Sunday or Resurrection Day? You can, absolutely can. You can, you can call it Pascha too, just like the Eastern Orthodox do if you really want to. I personally use almost all of those. But I've been using Easter more and more the more I've been reading on the subject. And so this concludes our Easter special. And hopefully by the time this episode is up, you will have a PDF up 
with all of this and footnotes and organized with a little bit more extra stuff. Um, if you made it through this whole thing, congratulations. This is historically Christ the Cure's longest episode. God bless you all. Again, no episode next week. I'm going to take the week off and prep for the Tulip series. Um, regardless of whether or not you come out agreeing or disagreeing on this subject, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor. God bless you all, and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend, and next week, and next weekend. God bless you.